0: What you have is a a Islamic system uh, headed by what is known as a supreme leader who claims to be not only, you know, the Lord's anointed, but actually uh, the Lord's representative on earth. And uh, if you're in that sort of situation, um, it causes problems uh, in terms of governance because uh, nobody's really accountable. He claims to be accountable to God alone. The UN said that basically Iran has every, you know, Every possible asset for industrial growth or something, you know, expansion, apart from good governance. And that's the the big weakness. I mean, it basically had everything. It's like, you know, a revolution which, you know, gave its revolutionaries an Aladdin's cave and it's proceeded to just basically spend it all. The memory of the last revolution is now fading. A lot of people were horrified by what the consequences of the first revolution were and weren't in a hurry to have another one. Now, the new younger generation obviously have no memory of the revolution in 1979 and therefore are less fearful. The distinctive thing this time around is that the protest is overtly political. It's led by the young and it's led by women. And certainly the protesters now are not thinking about reforming things. You know, it's not about tweaking aspects of the Islamic Republic. They just want it gone. I think people are basically coming to the conclusion that internal reform is impossible and that the only thing ahead of them is really for a complete transformation of the state. I mean, in in Iran, this is not the first time a woman has been brutalized. So, you know, people would say, well, you know, why would this trigger off? Well, it would trigger something because at this time, you know, there comes a time when people say, enough.
1: Are you tired of using bulky old wallets, giving you a bulge where you don't want it to be? My old wallet was massive. So it brought all the ladies to the yard, which was a huge distraction and got in the way of my esteemed work on trigonometry.
2: Ridge Wallets have an incredible solution for you. This is mine, sleek, stylish, and with an industrial look to it. It can fit 12 cards with cash on the back using a clip like this one or a strap. We've got one for the whole team. I've got one, Francis has one, even our producer
1: Anton has one, but he's from Liverpool, so he flogged
2: his on the black market.
1: The great thing about Ridge is that they give you a lifetime guarantee, which means if you want, you can have only one wallet for the rest of your life.
2: Ridge are so confident in the quality of their product. They will give you 45 days to test drive their wallets. That means you can get the wallet, use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days.
1: Because Ridge is such great guys, they're going to give you 10% off and free worldwide shipping and returns.
2: To take advantage of this incredible offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger. That's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our special code, which is, of course, Trigger.
1: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our
2: fantastic guest today is the perfect person to talk to about the subject we want to discuss. He's a British Iranian historian at St. Andrew's University. Ali Ansari, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you. Before we start talking about Iran, it's a subject that a lot of our audience have asked us to cover uh tell everybody who are you how are you how are you where you are what has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting
0: here talking to us well um uh, as you noted i'm british iradian so i came here uh, during the revolution as a young lad being sent over to school here and uh basically stayed uh for fairly obvious reasons and uh pursued my education here and uh ended up uh, becoming an academic, really an academic working uh, on Iran. I thought I might as well do something where I had some uh, linguistic ability. So, um, that, that helped, I think. And I've been studying, researching, writing about Iran for oh, probably about 30 years, which is uh, way too long, really. Uh, and I'm now, and I've been at the University of St. Andrews, actually, where I founded an institute for Iranian studies back in 2006. So, but I've been here, yeah, at the university since 2004. Which is why, as I say, you're the perfect
2: person to talk to about this. And Ali, as you know, on trigonometry, uh, we we like to explore the broader issue rather than just going to the news headlines that are out right now. So right now, I think a lot of people are in the position where they were with Ukraine, where it's like well, something's happening. No one knows what it is. Most people couldn't find the country on the map, uh, don't know the history. And I'm certainly, in terms of Iran, very much in that place myself. I don't really know anything about it. Uh, can you talk to us about the, you know, the broad, you know, obviously there's a lot of history we could cover and in an hour, probably not going to get to all of it, but I suppose the big question is how are we where we are today? How has this happened? Take us all the way through to, you know, over the last many decades.
0: Well, I mean, as a historian, I have to say, I mean, you, you, you've, uh, you've given me a, a bit of an open door there to, to talk at great length about the historical roots of this. I will limit myself, however, in order to get through in the time that we have to, you know, a couple of sort of major themes about the Islamic Revolution itself and the fact that obviously it was a contested revolution at the time in 1979. There were two very, very uh, different ideas, as is, you know, not unusual in these things about where the revolution should go. Uh, summed up really in the the title of the new state, the Islamic Republic. So the Islamic Republic was basically composed of two wings of thought. One that thought actually the aims and ambitions of the revolution should be to establish a republic. And the other side, which eventually won out, that basically said, no, the uh, ambition really is to establish an Islamic state of sort. That the republic was really a means to an end uh, and that uh, the popular participation votes and so on and so forth were, well, you know, not vital. Um, so... What we've ended up having, really, is that one wing of the revolution has triumphed over the other, and that wing is really an autocratic Islamist wing uh, around the person of a supreme leader. And as you can imagine, that sort of uh, autocratic tendency has tended to go uh, against the grain of what most Iranians are actually interested in. The constitution of the Islamic Republic did enshrine a number of sort of rights for people, not a huge amount, but certainly a you know a a limited amount that uh, might have been seen as valuable as by most Iranians, but most of these have been crushed. And instead what you have is a, a Islamic system uh, headed by what is known as a supreme leader, a, a guardian, a, 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 the guardianship of the jurist is the term that they use in Persian, but it's basically the supreme leader um, who claims to be, I mean, this is where it gets A little bit pre-modern, I have to say, who claims to be not only, you know, the Lord's anointed, but actually uh, the Lord's representative on earth. And uh, if you're in that sort of situation, um, it causes problems uh, in terms of governance because uh, nobody's really accountable. Um, He claims to be accountable to God alone. And of course, uh, this has led to huge frictions. It's led to huge frictions in terms of the way in which the country is governed. It's led to huge corruption and frictions in terms of the political economy of the country. And what we've seen over the last, I would say, decade to 15 years is a series of protests that have emerged against this uh, autocracy, and they have been growing in intensity and frequency. So while a lot of people, as you quite rightly say, will probably look at this and say, you know, what the hell is happening? This has all taken us all a bit by surprise. To those of us actually who've been watching Iran, it it hasn't really. I mean, it's it's something that most people anticipated because the situation was just getting worse. Um, The regime was entering what we might call a deteriorating cycle. And uh, the last protest they had was in 2019. It was pretty violent, violently suppressed, um, and things have just got worse. The distinctive thing this time around is that the protest is overtly political. It's led by the young and it's led by women. And there is a deep, deep ideological divide and gulf now between uh, the protesters and the authorities. And neither side wants to compromise. And certainly the protesters now are not thinking about reforming things. You know, it's not about tweaking aspects of the Islamic Republic. They just want it gone. So, you know, things are much, much more serious this time around. So it's it's an attempted revolution
2: at this point, it sounds like what you're saying, right?
0: I think people are basically coming to the conclusion that internal reform is impossible. And that the only thing ahead of them is really for a complete transformation of the state. And therefore, they just, you know, they, they view it as revolutionary. Now, of course, you know, when we look at things like revolutions, uh, it's very difficult to, you know, predict the outcome of these things. It's very difficult to know whether it's revolutionary. My own view, by the way, as a student of Iran, is that Iran has been in, has had revolutionary conditions for some time. Uh, the question is, is whether these could be, you know, operationalized in a way or whether, you know, that conjunction of events takes place to 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 trigger these things off my assumption always was that the government would all would end up doing something pretty stupid and which would trigger something so you know if you go back to the arab spring you know i mean i always said to people you know the problem with these political upheavals is they're not predictable you know who knew that in tunisia a local trader was going to self-immolate and trigger off a whole sort of series of protests well i mean in in iran this is not the first time a woman has been brutalized so you know people would say well you know, why would this trigger off? Well, it would trigger something because at this time, you know, there comes a time when people say enough.
1: And Ali, has this got the has this got the popular groundswell of people behind this movement? Or is, is it very much a kind of a young person thing, a university educated people who are rising up against them? Because I've got Iranian friends and they say, actually, a lot of the poorer people, are very much more conservative. They're very much more religious. And there tends to be a lot more support for the government from these these more poorer communities.
0: I mean, I don't think that's true anymore, I have to say. Uh, That's always been the tendency that you know, the, the poorer rural communities or some in the sort of more shanty town aspects will be conservative with the small sea or actually even conservative with the large sea and, and really support the government. The fact is that actually, even if you look at 2019, a lot of the violence uh, perpetrated against people in Iran was done against these very, you know, much poorer communities. A lot of the protests were protests that had economic uh, reasons behind them, pretty, you know, brutal economic reasons, actually. I mean, the level of poverty is, is extraordinary. And the poor, you know, really have nothing to lose anymore. What's happening this time around, I think you're quite right, is, of course, that a lot of this is also being led by you know, while I don't like to use these sort of terms like lower and middle class and others, I think, you know, in Iran, the class system is very simple. There are the rulers and then there are the ruled. I mean, that's basically it. They have various different levels of wealth. But those who are within that political fraternity are enormously wealthy. I mean, I don't know if any of you see this of rich kids of Tehran, sort of Instagram accounts and stuff. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, it, it's pretty obscene, you know. Uh, but the vast majority of people struggle. Um, now what you can say is there's sort of like a professional educated class that's true and those who go to university and those obviously who are the manual laborers but actually i think the level of protest this time around basically crosses that divide i mean it, it's 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 a whole broad range and this is what's quite interesting and particularly now uh what's been distinctive actually um is the level of support from what we could term the wider uh, political and social hinterland And what I mean by that, and you'll have noticed, hopefully, uh, you may have noticed if you were watching the Iran-England match, certainly, that among sporting, uh, uh, you know, artists, sporting celebrities and others, there is a lot of sympathy and support for this this movement. So how I've described it really is that, yes, the individuals out on, you know, doing the sort of physical protesting might be, as a proportion of the population, relatively small. I mean, of course, it is. It always is in these protests. There's a sort of a vanguard but the hinterland, the supporting hinterland is is vast. And and this is what's problematic uh, for the regime. You know, the regime knows that it's almost fighting a guerrilla warfare with uh, a group of people who are very well supported by a sympathetic society that also is utterly fed up with what's been going on.
1: And Ali, how much of this has to do with uh, US restrictions against Iran and the, and, the, and the embargoes that are happening? Is this partly to do with the fact that people are struggling so badly they they can't eat, they can no longer function? So the death of this poor woman has just lit the flame to essentially a pile of grievances that have been building up for many a year.
0: Well, I think there's a there's a sort of a um, a narrative, if I can put it that way, that tends to see everything that happens in Iran as a consequence of US actions and US sanctions in particular. US sanctions, I've always said, and sanctions in general, uh, and this is the way I've described it, are salt rubbed into a very large self-inflicted wound. And that self-inflicted wound is political and economic mismanagement on a grotesque scale. And what's interesting is most Iranians in Iran understand that. So they're obviously not enamored with being sanctioned. I mean, I think they're the most sanctioned country in the world, right? I mean, they they sort of mock the Russians for complaining that they're sanctioned. They say you haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, if you look at, you know, the views that are expressed among Iranians, almost all of them say that we know where the source of our problems are. You know, the source of our problems is a government that is inherently corrupt. And, you know, had they managed the country's resources better, then you know, we wouldn't be in the situation we are in. And let let me give you one example of of what I mean by that, because, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what Trump did, maximum pressure, so on and so forth. One of the great tragedies of modern Iran is the fact that they're running out of water. Okay, so any historian of Iran will tell you that the Iranian plateau is not short of water actually in terms of its water resources, but the, the rainfall always falls in the wrong places. So what you need to do in order to irrigate, you need you need to have good water management. What's happened in the last 40 years is not only is the population, I think, probably tripled, almost tripled, doubled, two and a half, basically. But, they, they you know, they, they wanted to go even higher. There's been a drawing down of those water resources, um, a huge use of, uh, again, of of, of, of water to, to supply agricultural development, you know, pistachios and stuff take a huge amount of water. And the water table in Iran has has basically depleted. And in 2017 and 2019 in particular, you saw that large stretches of southern Iran just didn't have any running water. I mean, it, it's just, it's a catastrophe. I mean, it's an absolute catastrophe. And I, I've talked to environmentalists in Iran who were just distressed by this. I mean, really badly distressed. Uh, this has nothing to do with Western sanctions or, you know, or this, this is basically to do with poor governance. I mean, it's as simple as that. And, and, and the trouble is, you know, if you look at it, uh, through and through, you'll see that, yes, there is impoverishment, but where does this impoverishment come from? It comes fundamentally from uh, the, the the corruption and political mismanagement that's at the heart of this regime.
2: And, and one of the things that I think a, a lot of us find quite striking about this situation is uh, you obviously came here during the, the revolution. Yeah. Uh, And I was born shortly after. But just to think that certainly within your lifetime and almost within my lifetime, you know, you see these photos of women walking around in Iran, uh, dressed like Western women. You know, you don't have a religious police uh, in in the way that you have now, all of this. Uh, It must be an extraordinary transformation for, for a country to go through. And I imagine the memory of the fact that things don't have to be the way that they currently are lives on for many people, even though it is the young people who are protesting. How has that, that played
0: out in, in, this, in this whole scenario? So the, there are two things about that which I think are, are quite important. One is that the Islamic Republic always used to uh, brag about the fact that while its economic record was not great, at least its political record was better than what happened in the last years of the Shah. So the, in the last years of the Shah, the economic record was pretty good, but it was politically, the political environment was quite suffocating. So people would always say that you know, yes, politics isn't brilliant in the Islamic rep- in Republic, but it's better, okay? Now they don't really have that. I mean, they neither have the politics or the economics. And everyone can look back in the 1970s and say, actually, uh, economically, our international standing, our economic standing, whatever the problems there were politically, uh, was actually vastly better. I mean, you know, and social life was also vastly, I mean, politics was was constrained, but nobody interfered with your with your social life, basically. So people had that. Now, one of the aspects, and, and the Iranian government, the Islamic Republic, gets very, very anxious about these satellite television channels that largely based in London, as it happened, um, that broadcast all these films into Iran. And there's always, you know, at the moment they're they're obsessed with, you know, it's always BBC Persian, Iran International, these sort of things. And they all say these are foreign in you know, interference. Actually, what a number of these channels, including, and I should mention, Manotur. So Manotur and Iran International have done two uh, uh, two of the channels based in London, who what they have actually done is they've pumped into the country, broadcasting in the country, documentaries, historical documentaries about Iran in the 20th century, using huge number. I mean, an enormous amount of archival material. I don't have a clue how they managed to get hold of all this, I have to say, but they got it. And obviously, this archival material shows, you know, the Shah and the Empress and whatever, and people, you know, wandering around the streets all, you know, wearing, you know, basically, Western, you know, style clothes, but also a certain degree of sort of international standing. The Shah also spoke very good English, he spoke very good French, you know, he, he could communicate with people. And people look at this. So it's not memory so much. It's almost like a, re, a an implanted memory, if I can put it that way. Because obviously these young people have no memory of what goes on in the 1970s. have no idea. But what they get now is they get this sort of, uh, they're almost reminded of something that they, you know, their, their, their parents would have said you had, you know. And it looks good. I mean, for them, it looks good. So uh, I think this has had an enormous impact, and I said this years ago. I said, uh, forget all these political programming and you know news programs. Young people aren't probably watching a lot of this, but what they are probably watching are documentaries about, I don't know, you know, Reza Shah or Mohammad Reza Shah or the progress the country made. I mean, there was a great, great documentary, for instance, uh, done a few years ago on the Iran Iraq War. But basically, the vast majority of the documentary was the lead up to the Iran-Iraq war. And it had the whole negotiations between the Shah and Saddam Hussein, lots of extraordinary footage. Um, You know, it was a bit of an eye opener for a lot of people when they saw this, because they wouldn't have been familiar to it. I mean, you have to remember this is a society in Iran that doesn't teach history in the way that we, we would understand it. They don't have that history. What they have is a very, very sort of political history in the way that you might have seen in the Soviet Union. I did.
2: I did. And that's Ah. uh, one of the things (laughs) I was going to ask you, Ali, because I think uh, we in the West also probably don't know the history of Iran very well. Of course, you do. But most of us have no idea. And I think, you know, uh, forgive me, but to most people in the West, Iran is a is a small country far, far away. It's insignificant, irrelevant. Yes. But actually, it's a descendant of a great empire in the Persian Empire, Mm. uh, the center of Shia. Islam in the world uh, and a hugely oil-rich country, which is very powerful in the region and and not just in the region. I mean, we see right now uh, Russia buying Iranian weaponry in order to fight in, in Ukraine. So, what is the significance of all of this more broadly? Because I think we I, would I be right in saying that we massively underestimate the significance of Iran in the West.
0: I, you know, I have to say I think in the popular conception you're absolutely right because Iran really since 1979 has faded from you know the the uh, uh, the, the popular sort of um, stare or imagination whichever you want to call it um, I think prior to that that wasn't the case I mean the, the Iranians had a fairly sort of uh, positive image in the West um, probably to the detriment of the Shah it has to be said but nevertheless it, it, it did and you know obviously since 1979 the image of iran has has, has been has taken a, a a deep turn south i mean it it's it's not done well at all but there's a lot of sympathy i have to say among uh, people in the west including the united states by the way for for iran or persia i mean i often use persia a lot in my and by discussion because it gives it 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 connects with people you know, in a way that iran doesn't and um, you know, I have to point out this is the same country. I mean, Persia is just the name that the Western countries used to call the country Iran until, you know, until the twentieth century. Um, but it, it makes that historical connectivity. And I think by rights, you know, Iran in the region should be the economic motor of the Middle East. I mean, by rights. I mean, if if, if it if it got its act together. Uh, there was a study done, I think, many years ago, I think, by the UN. <laughs> the UN said that basically Iran has every, you know. Every possible asset for industrial growth or something, you know, expansion, apart from good governance, and that's the, that's the big weakness. I mean, it basically had everything. It had water. It had, uh, you know, human capital. You know, uh, resources, natural resources. It has huge amounts. And of course, you mention oil, but the great. You know, the great sort of unspoken thing is that it does have actually have the second largest reserves of natural gas in the world. And none of this has been touched. You know, so, for instance, you'll see today that people say Qatar, you know, is doing very well through, because it has access to these gas reserves. Actually, that gas field it has is shared with Iran. I mean, it's not, you know, so it's not, the, it's not Qatar's gas field. But, of course, Qatar is exploiting it, obviously, and Iran isn't because nobody's interested in investing in Iran. So nobody does anything in Iran. Uh, And it does have these enormous, uh, it has an enormous capacity, as someone said, you know, to be the Japan of the Middle East, you know, to basically lead that economic growth. Uh, But it's, you know, it's a tragedy, really. The last 40 years, it's really squandered that opportunity. So yes, you know, my view, and this is again an argument that I have, is that the way the, what the Islamic Republic has done is it, it has inherited the architecture of the modern state from the Pahlavis. So the Pahlavi dynasty ruling, you know, from the 1920s through to 1979, basically built the state. They built the modern state. Imperfectly, but nonetheless, they built it. Um, it was by 1979, pretty rich. It was the largest producer in OPEC by the time, by the way, larger than Saudi Arabia. I mean, Iran basically lost its lead because of the revolution. And, um, you know, it was, you know, a big investor, actually, in, in in the West as well. I mean, this this is, I mean, the Shah had lots of money. I mean, the Shah was one of the people who was behind the oil price shock of 1973. People forget that, by the way, because they always see it as the Arab or you know, embargo. But actually, it was the Shah that really pushed it by the end of 73. And there was huge amounts of money. Um And Iran's standing was, you know, was pretty positive. Again, I'm not saying without problems. So what the Islamic Republic did is it inherited that. And it's basically gutted it, <laughs> essentially, you know, so it's basically inherited this huge resource and spent it. It's, 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 it's like, you know, a revolution which, uh, you know, gave its, the revolutionaries in Aladdin's cave and it's pre- proceeded to just basically spend it all. What it hasn't done is reinvest. And, and that's the problem. I mean, that is the problem. And even if you look at Iran's oil wells, by the way, they're lacking, they lack investment. I mean, they lack investment. They're running out. Um, they need to be maintained in a proper way, and they just aren't, uh, because obviously of the sanctions, but also because of Iran's relations with the West. Most of the companies that would be able to do the work that Iran needs to, to have done are Western. Um, Yes, the Chinese come in now and then, but the, you know, the Iranians are also, also a bit sniffy about the Chinese, to be honest. I mean, they, they sort of think that the best equipment is Western. So, I mean, there's this wonderful, you know, schizophrenic attitude towards the West, of course. They want Western technology, they want Western uh, expertise, but you know, the ideology loathes the West. So it's, it's, it's not, and I always say to them, I say, you know, they say, why are the Americans, you know, why, why is our, why are our relations? I mean, I, I'll tell you this anecdote. I remember a guy coming up to me and saying, uh, you know, we've got to reduce tensions with the United States. And I said, well, this is back in 2007 by way. And I said, well, you know, it would help if you stopped saying death to America every Friday. You know, <laughs> you know, and they, uh, <laughs> and, and he looked at me, I mean, he, he looked at me in a sort of slightly, you know, slightly gormless way I have to say and said, but, you know, Dr. Ansari, it's part of our culture. And I said, well, if it's part of your culture, mate, you know, there's not much I can do about it. You know, I mean, th- this is, you know, this is the absurdity of it. On the one hand, they want to be friends, but they don't seem to get it that if you just heap abuse on people every two minutes, it's not going to work. Hey, Francis, do you want to protect kids?
1: I was a teacher for 12 years, so no, I'll never forget what those little
2: put me through. Francis, what did your therapist say about moving on with your life? They ruined me. I was filled with joy and goodness until those little f***ing took my dreams and shredded them. Francis, remember what the lawyer said about not discussing the allegations in public? I was found not guilty on all charges. Not guilty is not the same as innocent. Anyway, going online without using express... <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> Not guilty is not the same as innocent. Anyway, going online without using expressvpn (laughs) I can't do it. Anyway, going online without using expressvpn is like leaving your kids in a public toilet. It'll probably be fine, but do
1: you want to take that risk? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, basically Any network that's not your own, your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, passwords, financial details, you name it. ExpressVPN
2: creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that hackers
1: can't steal your data. Hackers can make some serious cash selling personal information on the dark web. But ExpressVPN has made it easier than ever to keep your information safe. Just fire up the app, hit one button, and you're instantly protected. Secure
2: your online data today at expressvpn.com trigger and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com trigger for three extra months for free. I'm going to use it right now to find Francis a new therapist. I f- hate them. Well, this is what I was going to ask you, uh, Ali, because I think uh, we in the West, we're keen to be self-reflective. We're always keen to, you know, find our flaws and our faults. And all yeah, of yeah. This. yeah. So, uh, as, again, super lame in question, but why are we sanctioning Iran? Where does that come from? Is it simply the revolution was seen as illegitimate, or what are the reasons for? Because th- the story you're telling is actually a very sad story. It's a country of... Uh, Tremendous potential, great riches. Uh, The people that I've met who are Iranian are extremely well-educated, very intelligent. Uh, It's a country with great potential that is handicapped by the fact that it's been taken over by these primitive backward religious fundamentalists. essentially. That's what you're saying. And we have these tensions with Iran at a time when, you know, if it was ruled by different people with whom we didn't have those tensions, you know, that gas, that oil, that influence in the region might have actually been very helpful to to some of of what we want so why 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 is there this tension between us and iraq well i
0: mean the immediate i mean there, there are two sort of so we we ought to mention the more historical in you know, aspects but the immediate cause of course is the hostage crisis in 1979 so you know, obviously the taking of the US embassy in, in November 1979 and the keeping them, you know, the diplomats hostage for 444 days uh, had a fairly bad impact in the United States. But you've got to add to that, by the way, the Iran-Contra scandal in 1984 or so, you know, which all came out. So both Democrats and Republicans in America have bad experiences with Iran. The Iranians, of course, will claim that all this is down to 1953 and the coup that was launched by the British and the Americans against the then nationalist prime minister Mossad. You know, they, they all like to sort of point to an, a point of origin, an original sin that causes all the problems um and i you know i don't think we we probably don't have time to go into all the details of the history i mean what all i would say is a lot of these are politically genuine i mean a lot of these are genuine historical issues that need to be discussed and properly scrutinized but in terms of the way they're used politically these are political issues you know the russians did far worse things to iran to be honest over the last 150 years and yet funnily enough there's you know the official ideology is very pro-russian okay so it's not you know it's not an issue but you know in a in, in popular culture, and certainly popular political culture in Iran today, in you know, a 1953 looms very large, so they'll claim that that's the reason we have an enmity with the United States. That said, the sanctions issue is really a product of 1979, the decline in relations really that emerged in the 1980s. Although, while sanctions were placed on Iran at the time, I mean, when I used to go to Iran in the 1990s and the early noughties, yes, Iran was a sanctioned country, but it wasn't heavily sanctioned. Yeah, I mean, there were restrictions on US business in Iran in particular, I think fairly misguided, to be honest, in, in those stages. But it was driven by that sort of uh, the enmity that uh, American politicians had for Iran, for, for the reasons that I've outlined. But, you know, you could buy American goods in, in Iran. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't difficult to do because they all got came through Dubai anyway and all this sort of thing. And it was possible when the real tough sanctions really came out was the end of the 19, uh, uh, I, I suppose, partly in 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 the end of the mid 1990s end of the 90s but the really really tough sanctions came really with obama uh when and and also I beg your pardon really prior to that with the nuclear issue when the nuclear issue became very prominent in the early In the early 2000s, sanctions begin to pile on. But again, the really tough ones coming around 2011, 2012. And that's under the Obama administration, where they use sanctions really to try and twist Iran's arm to get them to the negotiating table over their nuclear issue. And I mean, that has also different, you know, there are different problems with that, because sanctions becomes almost an end in itself, in terms of handling Iran, and the nuclear process becomes basically the, the, synchronon of iran policy so everything is driven and focused by getting a nuclear resolution a resolution to iran's nuclear program irrespective of what the collateral damage might be to to wider iranian society or what's going on in wider iranian society i mean this 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 is the problem so there's a whole narrative that's built up in there that um is also quite destructive um, I think, to our understanding, I mean, what, one of the problems that people are surprised by the demonstrations that have happened now is because almost all Western analytical energy has been devoted to a solution to the nuclear crisis. And everything else that's happened in Iran is secondary to that. And and that's been a, a flaw, I think, in the way we've approached the country. But certainly, you know, the origins of the current situation is really the hostage crisis in 1979. I mean, that's, that's basically it.
1: Ali, I'm really glad that you've raised the issue of the nuclear crisis because the stories are starting now to filter into the mainstream media that Iran are actually quite close to being able to produce nuclear weapons. Yeah. So how does that affect our relationship now with Iran? Is it Do you think that we're just going to keep applying the pressure and, and hopefully by doing that ease this ease this regime out of power?
0: Well, the, the, there's a... I mean, in in policy terms, it's enormously difficult, you know, for for reasons. So you have a country, basically, in open revolt. You have another policy that seeks to get a resolution of the nuclear crisis, which will then see the release of funds to the very regime that's shooting its own people, which obviously the optics for that are not great in the capitals of Europe and and Washington, right? So you you, you face a very, very difficult problem. But then, of course, you know, this idea that are the Iranians ramping up enrichment, which they have been. Now, when you say, are they close to building a bomb? I mean, people say it's really a question of, have they got enough enriched uranium in order to pursue the construction of a bomb? I'm a little bit more sceptical about how close they are to building a bomb, I have to say. I mean, I I think there's, it will take time for them to actually develop that. And then obviously, they need to test it. I mean, where they're going to test it, I don't know, particularly. But anyway, so, of course, they've claimed that they never would go down that route. I mean, i tend to be fairly cynical about these claims, but, you know, some people in the West have believed it. Um, but nonetheless, I think at the moment uh, we're probably slightly further away to Iran actually developing a, a workable device than people think. Um, that's my view. Although I should say, you know, if you happen to get a, a, a nuclear expert odd who'll tell you otherwise, I will defer to them, but that's my, my reading of the situation. Um, and that of course, You know, the other pressures that the West can put on Iran at this time, uh, will probably help to prolong that process, if I can put it that way. You know, they, they, they're not, they're not at ease. It's not like they, it's not like the JCPOA has been implemented where now the sunset clauses are coming in and they can pursue it, you know, basically in the full glaze of, you know, Western tolerance, if I can put it that way. I mean, obviously the West and the Israelis in particular are not going to look on this very, very favorably. Now, the other dimension of this, which I think is important, which people miss out on, really is the fact that um, Iran has also doubled down on its political, military, and ideological relationship with Putin, and is probably, as, as Constantine was saying earlier, you know, having supplied, you know, Russia, which is a very bizarre turn of events, I have to say. Uh, does not a great look for Putin, but uh, there you are. You know, he's, he's, he's taking his drones at the moment. I think uh, he's
2: past caring about here. In <laughs> no, well, no, I'm I think, gonna
0: lie, yeah. I think <laughs> it's, yeah, but, it, you know, I, I have to say, you know, so this time last year, you know, my 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 own uh, view was always that you know Russia took the view, and Putin took the view that he he sort of mentored the Iranians. You know, you guys are revolutionary and 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 are fairly rabid about it at times. But hey, you know, I can handle international politics. You know, I'll you know I'll use my veto at the UN and so on and so forth. Actually, you know, judging by what's happened in the last six months, I have to say you know some of Putin's rhetoric could have been written for him in Tehran. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary stuff. I mean, it's very religious, uh, very millenarian. And this is the striking thing, though. What it does, of course, is it means that the protests in Iran become part of a wider problem. And this is quite interesting for me. I haven't fully understood or fully sort of thought in my own mind what the implications of this are. But I think there are implications, certainly in Western chanceries and others where they look at this they see the problem in iran not as a sort of a particular problem for iran but they see the problems in iran and the fight in iran as part of a wider struggle that's going on you know vis-a-vis ukraine and russia as well and of course zelensky has made this point very very clearly i mean he's he's also you know he's, he's wonderful sort of pr person for the protesters in iran in a sense he's now saying look you know our struggle is one you know so i think this has a much much deeper uh, implications and consequences for Iran. Because the idea that, um, you know, the Western powers are going to sign up to a deal with Iran um, has become even less likely given Iran's support for Putin. I mean, it just, it it you know, there might have been a possibility previously, you know, some sort of arrangement. I mean, it's been done before. The West has not always been as terribly good at sticking to its ideals. But now it, it just becomes enormously difficult. Um, and and I should add, by the way, if as we expect, Putin loses ultimately in Ukraine, it will have a tremendous knock on effect in, in Iran itself. I mean, I, I think that it will rebound in Iran. It will empower the protesters as well. And Ali, um, what role does Israel play in all of
1: this? Because obviously, Iran has, has been incredibly antagonistic to Israel. Has, has, uh, the, have the Israelis managed to apply a lot of pressure onto the United States because they're portraying the Iranians quite rightly as aggressors towards them, and that meant that the embargoes and sanctions have have been harsher as a result?
0: I think, you know, the Israelis... Have, I mean, one, one of the interesting things about the recent protests is actually Iranian ire and, 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 and anger is really being directed towards Saudi Arabia rather than Israel, which is quite striking. Normally, they would always blame Israel for everything. I mean, it, it, it's all like, you know knee-jerk reaction and you know for the iranians certainly the iranians the, and this is the fascinating thing i mean for the iranians in the in the, in the regime you know uh, israel is an ideological problem i mean they always they try to describe it as a geopolitical problem it isn't it's an ideological problem I mean, this, you know and they're constantly talking about you know we're going to eliminate israel israel will collapse i mean I, either in a sort of very passive aggressive voice or just an aggressive voice i mean it's one of the two um and obviously the israelis are extremely you know justifiably anxious about all this. So, I mean, I do think the Israelis at times have not helped uh, their own cause. I don't think Netanyahu played played it brilliantly. Um, on the other hand, you know, what they've been able to do is 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 really play the bad cop to some in the in Europe or the good cop. I mean, I think it's it's very much a sort of a, a combined effort, and they they're able to keep the West's feet to the fire on this issue and remind them that you know, given they live in the region, they have a very serious stake on what happens. So I think in terms of intelligence, I think in terms of combating certainly in proxies. I mean, basically the Israelis and the Iranians are already basically fighting in Syria. I mean, that's you know, the, 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 these things are already started you know, the Israelis play an absolutely pivotal role in basically keeping a light shone on this. And I think that's, you know, that's vital. I mean, and they, they're they reminding the West that, you know, you guys might be sitting back and, and thinking about, you know, wonderful deals. But at the end of the day, we are the ones who have to pick up the pieces and pick up the consequences. So it has to be something that we can live with. And I think really during Obama's period, of course, the, the deals that were being addressed were not something really the Israelis felt comfortable with. Um, I mean, Iranians, as a whole, by the way, their relationship with Israel is 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 much more, uh, if I may say so, sort of relaxed. I mean, they they don't have an is, issue with the Israelis. I mean, there's huge, huge numbers of Iranian Jews, of course, and uh, many of whom are, I have to say, uh, uh, are in are in Israel at the moment. Um, and um, you know, there are strong cultural links. I mean, and I said to someone, I said, you know, I think I think there are only two countries in the world possibly three that have this sort of obsession with Cyrus the Great, you know, one is Iran, the other is Israel, you know, and possibly America, by the way, but uh, certainly in Israel, they're really sort of keen on Cyrus the Great. And there was a, there was a, a phone-in show many years ago, which was very, I mean, summed it up for me actually in some ways. And it was obviously Israeli, you know, Persian television in Israel. And they were talking about Iran. And then they had this phone call from Iran, you know, so everyone got a little bit tense, you know, and and the guy on the phone call actually, started out quite aggressive on the phone call you know you guys you know where the hell you know and all this and yeah i think the studio audience was a little bit well you know maybe we should cut this guy off and basically the conclusion of this guy was he sort of said you know he said two and a half thousand years ago you know cyrus the great liberated you lot from babylon and said you, when the hell are you going to send someone to liberate us from the current <laughs> you know and of course the whole thing just and that sort of spilled over and i thought it was a, a great sort of uh you know, the attitude in Iran among Iranians uh, towards uh, the Israelis is 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 much less toxic than you'll find in the sort of, I mean, they're bored with the ideology, to be honest. And, you know, they don't forget that actually, you know, uh, the relationship with Israel prior to the revolution was actually pretty positive. That is such an interesting point. And mm-hmm. I
2: think it comes back to, to, I was going to ask you something about, because, People say to me, well, you know, you're from Russia, surely, you know, the Russian people are going to get fed up of Vladimir Putin and overthrow him and install brilliant, wonderful liberal democracy. And I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> Why? Why would they do that? They've never had democracy uh, in the yeah, entire history yeah. of, of, of the country. They've never had this thing that they're supposed to be aspiring to now. Um, but with Iran, it sounds like actually there was a history of things. Not, I mean, you, it wasn't an Islamic Republic of the type that it is now before. So, how likely is it that you know th- these protests are successful in? forcing genuine change and transformation and you get a, a a leap of some kind forward backwards left right whatever in a different direction where you end up with an Iran that that has a completely different posture towards the world and, and is is welcome back into the international community
0: well that, that's a really good i mean it's a really good point and in, in the sense of you know what are the prospects for you know change in Iran in that sense. And, you know, as you say, if you look at the Russian experience, you know, the transition to democracy is never something that should be taken for granted. Uh, and it, these are difficult. What I would say is this, of course, first of all, I'd say that in Iran has a very, very positive um it, it, there's, a, there's a receptive audience in the West. Let me put it that way. I mean, there, there's no that you, you you know, actually, to be honest, I usually say to the Iranians, just allow people to call you Persia and you'll find actually that branding is going to work wonderfully. And you know, <laughs> all, people, all people will talk about is carpets and caviar cats and this sort of thing. And, you know, you, you'll immediately soften your image. But I, I use that sometimes with students also just to point out, you know, how word association, you know, how important it is in a way and how branding is important. Because, also to point out you know in the west if you talk about these things there are positive connotations of that and people will sort of build on it now in the political sense and this is something i have been uh, harping on about really is that you know a lot of people will be fighting the last revolution of course and looking at 1979 as the model for anything going forward i i've said that actually what people really need to look at uh, is 1906 and 1906 was iran's constitutional revolution which set up you know basically a parliamentary system on the british model okay uh, and it you know, obviously it didn't work uh, in in the long term, but it set the template. And this is important. It set a reference point for every subsequent political movement. And even to this day, you know, younger people come up and they say, what happened to the aspirations of that movement, of that revolution in 1906? Why have we not promised, you know, why has that promise not been delivered? And I think that's in some ways quite important. I'm one of these people, I'm one of these historians, I have to say, who, who actually believes in the power of ideas to change things. And yes, it can take a long time for these ideas to seep in and yes it can take you know it it can have a troubled journey if you can put it that way but the fact is one of the things about the current movement is that you know 15 years after probably the most systematic you know root and branch suppression that occurred in iran after the green movement in 2009 a whole new generation of iranians have come up you know many of them teenagers by the way expressing exactly the same views in a way of a pre you know of a previous generation and talking about rights you know people say it's about the veil it's not about the veil it's about the right to choose if you want to wear the veil wear it if you don't want to wear the veil don't wear it but it's a fact that people in iran men women baha'is religious minorities of other sorts whatever you want to talk about ethnic minorities have rights that protect them you know, and have civil and human rights. And these are very, very fundamental uh, ideas, you know, that come, you know, I think have been best achieved in a way and expressed in the Western context, but certainly have deep, deep roots in in, in many different cultures uh, and were expressed very clearly, you know, 100 years ago. And the fact that they were expressed very clearly 100 years ago in Iran shows that they have deep, you know, they have deep roots and it's difficult to eliminate that. Uh, successive regimes have not been able to get rid of it and people have aspired to it. So I, you know, while I think that the the, the road ahead is going to be a difficult one, um, I'm encouraged by the fact that there is this sort of set, there is this political awareness uh, among this new generation of Iranians, which is very impressive. And they've sort of learnt, in a sense from the legacy of the past, which is the torch has been handed on and it's not going to go anywhere. So you know, ultimately, I think, you know, there is an opportunity that the key really for the West is not to look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, the West has a terrible, terrible reputation for dropping the ball, you know, on almost every occasion. So if, for instance, you know, Iran does move towards a secular system of government and a democratic settlement, I should say that suits its own indigenous sort of culture, I don't want to, you know, prescribe anything for them, whatever in that sense, but let's say a secular republic of some sort, um, I think it will be transformative in the region, in terms of Iran's relations with the West, in, in Iran's international standing. And this is something that the West, at the very least, should not obstruct. Um, I I've put the bar very low there, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, even if we're not saying encourage, uh, and I think it should encourage it, but what it shouldn't do is obstruct it. And, you know, there, there, there are strong parallels here again, with the Ukrainian situation where we found, if you remember right at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, a number of European countries, very cynical, very sceptical. Do we really want to get into this? Can't the Russians just get this done quickly? <laughs> can we just move on and so on and so forth? Um, again, what I say to people about the current protests in Iran is we don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, any, anyone who says they can predict it, you know, nonsense. But I wouldn't dismiss it so quickly either. I mean, that's, that's the key. Don't be so quick to dismiss it. These people are showing enormous courage. And, you know, I think they should be, you know, respected for that. And they should be given the space, in a sense, to try and achieve those aims that, you know, most of us in the West take for granted. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you
1: do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the
2: perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you.
1: They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that.
2: So will you in a second. <laughs> DNS have rock solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer
1: support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own.
2: <laughs> you know about that.
1: <laughs> Move your
2: domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now, All you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial
1: purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. Ali, has this provoked a backlash against uh, the religion of Islam because people associate the religion with this very oppressive regime morality police etc or do people just see this as an example of uh, where you know islam gone wrong to put it mildly
0: i think there's both to be honest now you know people want to be very careful about so you know i always say that look you know that the secularism that that iranians are are aspiring to is very much you know what we would identify as an anglo-american secularism um, rather than the French model, you know, in that sense of laicism, if I can put it that way, there's not, you know, Iranians are always, I, in my view, will always have a tendency towards a spirituality and have a, a sort of religious belief. What they don't want, however, is the government to be involved in religion and they don't want the government to be shoving religion, you know, right down their throats. And, you know, there are arguments that basically, you know, in, t- in two ways, you know, yes, we have these clerics, we're a center of Shiism in a sense, as was as said at the beginning of the, the podcast. But, you know, very much like what the Italians did to Catholicism, you know, we ought to build a wall around the religious cities. They can do whatever they want in the Vatican and Iraq, you know, whatever, but they shouldn't come out. The other side of it, of course, is is goes to the heart again of what you were saying there, that, um, you know, when the revolution started, people would say that what we need to do is we need to bring religion and politics together. We don't want to divide religion and politics because religion will make politics ethical. And of course, many clerics at the time even said, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is we're going to make religion political and and we're going to ruin it. And that's basically what's happened. You know, so basically, you know, so what, what they say is, you know, I mean, they used to say, I don't know if it's a very good analogy anymore, but they used to say, you know, look at the Americans. They have lots of religion. It's a secular republic, but they have lots of religion. Um, I'm not sure that's the best comparison to make these days, but nonetheless, uh, you know, that's the point. The point is, if you take politics out of religion, religion can flourish and it can flourish in its purest form right um i have to say though you know going back to what you were saying i think there's a lot of young people who are just completely fed up with religion full stop um now what what have they done in the uh, 20 years ago i used to talk to iranians young iranians and they were turning towards christianity for instance they just didn't like they said islam is just they would say to me actually they said it's a religion of death they said you know all we do is celebrate martyrs you know um, of course, you know, Christianity is obviously built on the concept of martyrdom, of course. So, you know, but they, they seem to at least to say it, it, it had a, uh, you know, there was hope built in that. But then also a lot of Iranians have turned to various, how should we say, you know, um, what I call Zoroastrianism with house rules, if I can put it that way. I mean, they can't become Zoroastrian in that sense, but they sort of feel this is more authentically Iranian in terms of a belief system. And, you know, they, they, you know, they will, they will pursue religious beliefs, um, uh, that, that suit them, but they definitely have a certain. I think now the younger generation certainly have a deep antipathy towards what we would call organised religion, and in this case, obviously, Islam in, in, in Iran. It will take a long time for the for the religion itself to re-establish itself, if I can put it that way, as as something uh, credible uh, among the young. Certainly, and
1: we constantly talk about the young people, and it's obviously it's always a young who, yeah engage in revolutions and and, 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 and have this change. But what effect and what influence has the internet played upon these young people? Are they looking at apps like Instagram and TikTok and seeing how we live in the West and going, hang on a second, this person's allowed to dress like this. This person is allowed to earn money. This woman is allowed to to live the life that she wants.
0: Why am I not allowed that? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you know, one of the reasons I say to people, we need to be very careful about how we, uh, how we analyze the current situation is because we're operating in a very different environment. And that environment is dictated by social media, and the internet and means of communication that our ancestors, even our very recent forebears would not have been familiar with. And technology has always played a very pivotal role in Iranian political movements from the foundation of the telegraph through obviously to the radio and you know cassettes and this sort of thing and then obviously satellite uh but this is something else and i I think you're right about this it's very difficult you know the iranians iranian young people are particularly tech savvy they understand the connectivity they are connected by the way and you're quite right you know they are connected with the outside world they do see things but more than that they see the internet and social media as a tool of organization I mean that that's been quite interesting, and we don't see this thing. Obviously, we don't see this thing because you know, in a sense, as I say to people, if we can see it, then surely the government can see it. So you know, the the, the idea is a lot of this is below the radar, but there's, there is, as I understand it, an enormous amount going on in in what you, we could call you know, um, you know, parts of the web that are that are hidden in some ways um, because they're there to protect themselves, and it is a it is a constant battle, obviously, in Iran. I mean, the government is is trying to close off avenues, uh, young people are opening up other ones, you know, it's, it's it's a running battle. And I think one of the most important things the West can do actually in this is to ensure that the internet stays in some way or form open, you know, um, I don't know whether the Starlink, you know, that Musk was talking about, whether that's functioning or not, or whatever, but you know, we have to maintain uh, channels of communication, because that's the way they organise, that's the way they mobilise. And uh, I think it's been highly effective. And Ali, on, very much on that point, one of
2: the, I mean, it's not a criticism because, uh, you are not criticizing them, but one of the concerns about how likely the protesters are to succeed in achieving their aims is that uh, they don't have a, an identifiable leader. There's yeah. no organizational structure. Uh, so even if they were able to somehow force the current regime out, what does it get replaced with? That there's a lot of concern that a they wouldn't be very successful because they don't have an organized structure and uh, some kind of leadership, and b if they were to succeed, you know, do you get some kind of mess afterwards, and then you end up with the army taking over or, or
0: something of that nature? I mean that that they, these are distinct possibilities. I mean, uh, let's not have any illusions about it. But where I would dispute with those that get very obsessed with the absence of leadership is that again, we're refighting 1979 rather than sort of looking at broader political movements in Iran. 1906 had no single leader, you know, had many different leaders, uh, many coming from what we would call a middling level, not even, you know, high level. Now, of course, you know, senior clerics at times have come out and support, but often this occurred later rather than earlier in anything. And you're already seeing these sort of things in Iran, by the way. So, you know, again, if, I think in due course, I think you're absolutely right to say that there will need to be a, a greater, a sharpening in a sense of, of the organization, the leadership. It could be many, few leaders, by the way, it doesn't have to be a single leader, um, but that would have to come. We're what, 10 weeks, 11 weeks into a, a protest cycle at the moment. I'm entirely prepared you know, to see that it would subside and then reemerge, you know, these things, if you go back and look at the period in 1979, 78, I should say, if you look at the period in 1906, there were lulls as well as sort of, you know, increases in, in tempo and activity. And these things happen in stages. So I do say to people, we ought to be a little bit more cautious about the fact that saying, oh, well, there's no clear leader there. Um, there, there there are no shortage of people who can play the role of leader in Iran, by the way. I mean, there are no shortage of them. They're very bright, interesting people there. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, beneath the radar, a lot of them are, are, are operating. If you look at the way in which uh, the government has set out sent out snatch squads to pick off people on the streets, it's a clear indication that they understand there are street organizers going on. They may not be in the sort of category of leader that, you know, people sort of assume with Ayatollah Khomeini. But as I remind people, even in 1978, you know, not everyone saw Ayatollah Khomeini as the primary leader. I mean, it took him a while to consolidate his position. Uh, people rallied around him, certainly, because they saw him as a potential figurehead, but not everyone saw him as the leader of the revolution. I mean, that's something that came later. And, and I wanted to ask you
2: something uh, perhaps slightly unrelated and maybe even not in, in terms of your core area of expertise. So feel free to pass on it if you want. Sure. But I'm curious, in light of the of the World Cup uh, currently happening in Qatar, and our attitudes to the way migrant workers are treated yeah. there, the way gay people are treated, uh, women, and so on, there's obviously a big debate, and I'm still trying to chart a path for myself how I feel about it. Because on the one hand, uh, the moral relativism of "oh yeah, you know, it's just their culture, let them throw people off roofs and, and whatever," yeah, 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 that uh, that I find that abhorrent. On the other hand, Do I feel that we in Britain should decide how every country in the world uh, sets its laws and treats different groups? And, you know, again, it seems almost colonial to some extent or imperialistic to go in and say, well, you must allow this to happen or you mustn't allow this to be going on. So how do we how do we navigate that, uh, Ali, when we're dealing with cultures? You know, these are ancient cultures with their own ways of doing things that I, I think ought to be respected as well. So how do we, how do we navigate this?
0: Well, I mean, the interesting thing is to root it in that historical tradition. And you're absolutely right. But if you look at Iranians today, as I said, for two things. One is obviously these demands that they have are rooted in political movements going back to the 19th century. But they're also rooted in their own, what I consider to be a deep humanism that actually uh, transcends a lot of Iranian or Persian culture through the centuries. You know, this idea that, you know, let, let's, just, let's just take the, the case of drinking, you know, alcohol. Are we really assuming that in Iranian culture or Persian culture, nobody drank? I mean, you know, over thousands of years, people have been drinking wine. Um, if you look at the role um, even of women, if you look at, yes, there are traditional aspects, but it's also, you know, what you're seeing in, you know, the, one of the great sort of myths, I think, of the Islamic revolution is that somehow they went back to the older order. No, in some ways, these are very radical new interpretations. It's a bit like, you know, do you remember when when the Taliban blew up the, the, the Buddhas at Bamiyan and people said, are they being authentically Islamic? And someone said, well, what did the original Muslim invaders think? I mean, you know, I mean, the the fact is what they were doing was being even more radical than the original Muslims. Do you see what I mean? I mean, and and this is also a question mark that's happened in Iran now. So the the... Islamic
2: revolution, sorry to interrupt, just just to simplify this. So the Islamic revolution isn't uh, Iran going back to its cultural heritage of thousands of years. It is, in fact, a a radical departure from those Mm. towards a much more Authoritarian, ultra-conservative Islam.
0: I mean, I think, I think absolutely. I mean, I do, You know, there is obviously a tradition of autocracy in Iranian, you know, history. Of course, there is. But you know, democracy and rep- are fairly modern inventions in that sense, or yes. developments in terms of the last couple of hundred years. Um, but certainly, even if you look at the Iranian idea, if you look at the ideology of the Iranian revolution, they even say in there, they say, "We are going to implement Islam as it should have been implemented." Do you see what I mean? So they say nobody else has done it. We are the first to do it. So in a sense, you know, it's a hugely hubristic position to take, you know, that thousands of years, nobody understood it, but we're going to do it. And so Islam has never been done properly, Ali. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what they say. Do you see what I mean? So they say, you know, what we're going to do. So what I would say is you can easily look at it and say, actually, this is a radical departure. Yeah. And if you look at, um, uh, even you know when I was working heavily in the reform movement and others in the 1990s and early noughties, because of Shiism is a is interesting in this regard because it it relies on the principle of continuous interpretation of the scripture. Okay, that's why you have these mullahs and clerics and jurists and others. They're constantly looking at the scripture and reinterpreting it for the time. And of course, people would say then that in terms of the veiling, for instance, you know, that there's nothing particularly Islamic about the sort of veil and the, the veil that Iran implements, that, you know, we need to interpret these things in light of, you know, how society moves along so there was an interest in that what, what the regime has done is basically actually is is in some ways actually extremely un-islamic and and uh, you know i would say actually since 2009 a number of things that they've done have, have bordered. i mean i think are actually quite blasphemous from an islamic point of view um i mean i've talked to muslims here you know who say that they're quite staggered by some of the claims they make you know particularly in terms of the supreme leader and his uh, and the authority he claims um these are things these are things that basically in traditional shia you know theology just, you know, are, are seen as innovative, and innovations of this sort are, are actually very, very uh, uh, frowned upon.
1: And Ali, uh, when I talked to uh, one of my Iranian friends, he, and, I, and I was putting forward, whilst I was doing research for this interview, and I was asking him certain questions, he said to me, the thing you need to understand, Francis, about Iranian culture, is there is this kind of counterculture that has always existed within Iran. And actually, there's a lot of people who, when they want to go and party, young people, they go to Tehran because it's got this fantastic underground party scene.
0: Well, you know, the joke in Iran, you know, was always that, you know, before the revolution, we used to, you know, pray indoors and drink outdoors. And then after the revolution, we, uh, you know, prayed outdoors and drank indoors. I mean, it's, it's that, you know, there is a sort of a, a, a cosmopolitan uh, iconoclastic tradition. Certainly in Iran, and 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 you know, it's one of the things that's allowed the regime to survive, if I can put it that way, because for all the autocracy, there's a lot of sort of crevices and 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 ways in which you can sort of navigate through and actually live the, your life as you'd want to, uh, as long as you're you know you navigate that sort of thing uh, carefully. Um, but of course, as the regime has become more and more autocratic, and more and more determined to impose its will upon the population, even those avenues are being shut down, you see, so then it becomes incredibly difficult. And it, it is this point, you know, what I say to people is I say, you know, why are people annoyed? Why are people angry? It's because, you know, basically, you have closed off every opportunity for them to have a bit of fun, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, to be able to live their lives. Um, you're, 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 you're suffocating the life out of them. And of course people are going to react. Um, And also I have to say, you know, the memory of the last revolution is now fading. A lot of people were horrified by what the consequences of the first revolution were and weren't in a hurry to have another one. Now the new younger generation obviously have no memory of the revolution in 1979 and therefore are less fearful, if I can put it that way.
1: And Ali, is the reason that the regime has become more autocratic? Is it, is is it just simply religious doctrine or is it because they can feel that power is slowly slipping from their fingers? So they're trying to grip more tightly onto it.
0: I think it's just hubris, actually. I think power corrupts and, and, um, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And they just, they're complacent in power and they think they can just push the limits further and further and further. So I think, you know, it, it's, it, there is a deep ideological strand within, you know, the hardline establishment about where they want to go. And they are pushing that and they are becoming more and more, uh despotic, I think is the right word for it really in terms of the pursuit of this. So I think that's uh, uh, it, it's it's just an ideological project.
2: Well Ali it's been an absolutely fantastic interview and thank you for uh, this incredible insight well, Thank you. Uh, into something that we understand. As so you a can imagine,
0: as you can imagine, we could probably go on for hours, but I don't think either either you yes. or your listeners would want to. <laughs> uh, no, I actually disagree.
2: I think our listeners would have found this <laughs> to be very interesting, and, and uh, history is actually one of the most popular subjects on trigonometry. We love. that oh, really? Your oh, yeah. so we Perhaps uh, we perhaps uh, love to get you on another time, but for now, uh, we have only one more question for you, which is, as always what is the one thing that we're not talking about that we really should be? And that's a complete free hit. doesn't have to be related to Iran even.
0: Well, you know, what are we, God, you know, and uh, since you already warned me about this in some ways, but I have to say, I I can't think of anything at the moment that I, that I, um, I, I mean, the one thing I would say is, and, and this is completely detached from what I've said, but one of the things I would say is I think we need to, um, uh, one of the things I think we need to be very aware of, um, certainly in the West is, uh, I don't know if this is going to make much sense, actually. I don't know if I should Let's say find that. Our, Let's find out. Uh, so what I was saying is that, you know, one of the, one of the problems I found really is, is, is the, um, uh, the advance of the digital age and our inability really to have regulated, moderated, curated, actually, are digital archives, in a sense. You know, there was a wonderful piece that one historian put out, and they said our failure to actually deal with digital archives means that in some ways we're entering a new dark age. And a dark age because future historians are going to have this blind spot in their archival resources because many people have failed, uh, in a sense, to properly curate their digital archives. And I know this is sort of slightly left field, but I think for future historians it's going to be a massive, massive problem by the way, that from about 2005 onwards, there's going to be a massive blind, blind spot in terms of um, government and other sort of archives that are simply not going to be available because they have not been properly curated. So I'm going to throw that out there. I know what people are going to make of it, but I, I, for me, it's one of the great problems that we're going to face going forward. And unless people tackle that problem now, it's, 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 it's going to be quite interesting for the next generation, how they deal with recent history.
2: Well, that's fascinating. We're going to ask you a couple of questions from our local supporters that only they will get to see on Locals. Uh, but okay. for now, Ali Ansari, tell everybody where they can follow uh, your work if they wish to. Um, they can they local- can
0: follow me on they can follow me on Twitter if they wish. Uh, but uh, also just to keep an eye on on uh, in San Andreas, actually on the San Andrews website they can see stuff there. And I'm, I'm I obviously do a few things on uh, on on media and others. So that's yeah.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation you had with a couple of our former guests recently, Nigel Biggar. Ah, uh, yes. yes, So I recommend people check that out. I
0: have to go and watch that. (laughs) Uh,
2: You should. It's good. Uh, But for now, thank you so much for joining us. uh, And thank you guys for watching uh, and listening. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one, or our show, all of which go out at 7pm UK time. And
1: for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it is also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon guys see you on Locals what would you say is the likelihood that
2: you're going to see a dramatically new system of government